Welcome to The Short-Term Show, the show about short-term rentals and long-term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short-term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Did you know that we're officially back in a buyer's market? That's right. Even though interest rates continue to rise, they are causing prices to fall. So there's finally room for you to do regular real estate investor things that we couldn't do for so long, like gasp, negotiate, make lower offers, ask for sellers to cover some of your closing costs. So it's a really great time to buy in terms of being able to get a lower purchase price and being able to negotiate. So if you're looking for your first or next short-term rental, it's a perfect time to reach out to us at the short-term shop. Let our team of agents in any of our true vacation market destinations help you find the perfect investment. Jump on over to the shorttermshop.com and click get connected to get started. We are brokered by eXp Realty. See y'all over there. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the short-term show. I have a super interesting guest today. I have Seif Kafagi from Tech Vester, sorry, lost my words, from Tech Vester. Uh, really, really interesting things that these guys are doing over there. Um, I've you've heard John Bianchi on the show before, and he's also with Tech Vester, and so I'll I'll let him explain. So, hey, Steve, how's it going? I'm good, Avery. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Um, so, tell us a little bit about what Tech Vester is. Tech Vester is one of the first institutional grade passive options to invest in the short term rental space. So really what we do in a, in a nutshell is we help you invest in short-term rentals without doing any of the work. And we literally mean none of the work. So you don't have to find the property. You don't have to design the property. You don't have to go get lending on a property. You don't have to operate the property. Uh, we are a syndication for lack of a better word. So you can invest as little as $25,000 with us. Of course, assuming you're an accredited investor because we only work with accredited investors. And you know, you're a owner or a shareholder in a portfolio of 50 hundreds of properties across the country, geographically diversified, seasonality diversified, um, and really everything diversified across the board. Um, and everything that you're doing, all the benefits that you're getting, the cash flow, the equity growth, the tax benefits, every little thing is the same exact benefit you'd get as if you owned any property by yourself. Just in this case, you don't have to do any of the work or take out any of the liability. So that's really interesting especially at this point in the history of short-term rentals as as it's being written um so i was thinking and i mentioned in a, a conference last week that even if you are going to you know go buy a property yourself and put it with a property manager it's really not passive it, you're still having to do a lot of things to get it there and you're actually having to work harder i think at the beginning to find a deal that actually works where you can cut 20% to 25% right out of the off the top for it to make sense so um for those of our listeners who don't know what a syndication is can you just give like a brief definition of that yeah so a syndication is typically or the relationship in a syndication you typically have what's called the general partner and you have what's called a limited partner so in this example we are the general partner and the general partner's responsibility is to really do all the work right find the deal operate the deal hire the service providers you know deal with the toilets deal with the financials deal with the lenders 
you know, deal with the guests, deal with everything in some capacity, whether it's them or, you know, some property manager they hire or a third party in some sort of an infrastructure. And a limited partner is known as typically the investor. And um, you have limited responsibilities. Really, your only responsibility is to provide capital to the deal. Um, and you're providing capital in exchange, typically, for some sort of preferred return. And that preferred return simply means that you typically get paid first. Your capital is protected and preferred in the capital stack. And you earn a share of the profits. Typically, you know, for example, maybe an 8% preferred, you get the first 8%, and then you get some sort of split after that. It could be 50-50, it could be 80-20, whatever that number is. And really what you're saying is, I want to make 80% of the profits, but I don't want to do any of the work, right? Because I don't want a job. If you want to go make 100% of the profits, then you would go do it yourself, right? And that's kind of the whole point of syndications and really trusting and finding an operator who will handle the day-to-day, the bigger picture, and the operator or the general partner will report to you on a quarterly or monthly basis or sorts and tell you how things are going. So you can read an email for five minutes and be like, cool, and now I have an idea how my investment is going, but you don't have to handle anything on an ongoing basis. Okay. Thank you for that. So I have a lot of questions about the nuts and bolts of how this all works. But first, I want to ask a few questions about how you ended up deciding to to start TechVestor? Like, what was the catalyst for you saying, okay, I think I'm going to start a, a syndication for short-term rentals? Yeah, that's a great question. So Sabrina, who's my co-founder and I, we both come from tech, both Apple and Facebook respectively. And we, you know, we worked on a bunch of great, fantastic products and building teams and infrastructure uh, for a lot of time, especially during hyper growth days for both those companies. And for me specifically, um, I was involved with talent and recruiting people um, and building infrastructure for those people, right? Meaning like opening up offices in places like Boston and Los Angeles and things along those lines. And when you open up a new location, um, it's not just about hiring a person. It's about where those, are you going to attract people to say Boston to work at Facebook at the time? And they need to understand where their kids are going to go to school where they're going to eat, where they're going to sleep, because you're not just attracting them to Facebook, you're attracting them to Facebook in Boston. And when you open up an office, you go and visit there. We, to, you know, we were there for weeks, sometimes at a time, right? Figuring out where our future employees would actually live and thrive and play and do all that. And we stayed in a bunch of Airbnbs. Um, and most of the time it was really shitty Airbnbs. <laughs> um, and we were like, could never grasp the amount of money that was being paid to hosts for the value that we were getting. So anyway, you know, we would leave and you know continue to do that for a couple of years. And you know, I that still kept being on my mind as I became an LP and other syndications and learning more about the space. Um, and for me, it was uh, the light bulb moment became why can't someone scale this? Right. And coming from a place of tech, everything we did was scalable. Right. You, if you had to do it more than once, it was automated. So I was asking myself, why couldn't someone scale a short-term rental portfolio easily? In fact, everything you would read and hear, especially over the last couple of years, was you had to be there. It's really hard, right? DIY. I'm like, I don't know how I would deal with guests two thousand miles away. Like that's that's a problem, right? Or you can hire a property manager and of course go down that path. But a lot of the DIY things happening. So naturally, Sabrina and I, we built software at the beginning to help build our own portfolio. 
we tried to, um, you know, essentially the software allowed it to, to identify the best possible properties to buy in the best possible markets. Um, you know, we pulled in data from the MLS, we pulled in public and private data to STR data in general, and we essentially built software and we took that to market and people loved it. They just didn't want to use it. And it wasn't sticky enough because if they found one property, they were like, great, I'm good. They didn't need it on an ongoing basis. The only person who needed it on an ongoing basis was us. If you wanted to buy 10 or 20 or 30 or hundred short-term rentals. Um, and what we heard from early clients and early customers was, I still don't want to do any of the work, right? Like this all sounds great. The software's helped me really identify and understand what to buy, but I still don't want to operate. So we were sitting in a Zoom just like this that we're on today and talking and all of our customers were like, wow, I really love your property, Avery. You know, see if I really love your property. They were almost like the grass is greener on the other side. And they were explaining what a syndication was, right? They just didn't know it. They were saying, wow, I wish I had a piece of that one, a piece of that one, and a piece of that one. And I still don't want to operate it. So we said, hey, what if we rolled all these properties together into a portfolio? You each owned your pro rata share. And we operated the this fund or this portfolio for everybody. And that was a hit. Within the next 30 days, we raised our first $7 million. So clearly we hit some product market fit from the community. Um, and in our first year, we went on to raise $37 million in equity uh, to go do this at 80 times um, across the country. Um, and today we're on our second fund. So that's the story of how we uh, turned software into non-software. But today we use our own software to drive a value to our investors as well. Okay. Very... Uh... <laughs> Exactly. Kind of how I, I I didn't realize you guys put out actually a data tool because I think there's a lot of, not a lot of people, there's a handful of people out there trying to uh, not compete with AirDNA, but essentially to compete with AirDNA because that's been the only data tool in the space for a long time. And um, there's several out there trying to kind of improve it. So I'm kind of surprised that it it didn't stick, but at the same time, I totally get it because a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I bought my one property. Let me cancel my AirDNA subscription. Yeah, you know, I think we saw that for sure. I don't, we were nowhere at scale like AirDNA or, or any of these other companies and we weren't really trying to compete with them. I think for us, it was more about what value could we add in operating um, rather than just acquisition and kind of building a full stack. In fact, today we work with AirDNA incredibly closely, right? I know Scott very well. Jamie uh, is one of our advisors, right? So we are, we're very well in tune with AirDNA. We don't actually compete with AirDNA or any other tools and we don't license or sell our software anywhere, right? That's everything that we use is in-house exclusively for us. And we do use third-party tools like AirDNA and other data tools as well. Um, and I'm sure you know many of them um, within the industry as well. So uh, we've built that in-house that really allows that competitive advantage. Um, and we are a real estate company that happens to build technology, not a technology company that happens to do real estate. And I think that's really important um, because we're not competing in like the open doors and the Zillows. And I think people see our name sometimes and they're like, ah, tech company. And we're like, no, 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 we are real estate fundamentals through and through. We just happen to have the edge of automation in the, in the dinosaur industry right? Where we can actually do things that your, you know, grandpa type real estate syndicator won't do. And I think that's so important to the way you phrase that, because I, in, you know, my, the various real estate businesses that I have, when I need a tech platform of some sort, where it's a tech company, that's like, oh, I think we're going to do this in real estate. It's, 100 times out of 50 never ever works for what I need it to do because they don't understand the real estate 
uh, business truly. They, they know, okay, well, this platform will work in a real estate setting, but it actually doesn't do what I need it to do in my real estate businesses. So I really like that where real estate, we're bringing tech into it because then you're the fundamental business understands what's going on and you're bringing the tech in to help scale that, which real estate, I mean, I don't think it's any secret that the real estate investing, real estate sales, brokers, everything is like, I would say 20, 30 years in the past in terms of capitalizing on technology and like living up here in 2023 with the rest of us. So I think that's really smart. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. Right. And like everything we do is human led. We have an incredibly talented team that, you know, industry veterans, industry experts at what they do. I mean, you talked about John to begin with, right. We're literally known as the data guy in the space. Um, and then we have everyone from like Mick, who's our head of asset management, who previously ran portfolios at Picasa. So we've invested heavily in people and then provided and built complementary tools that allowed them to succeed and excel as well. Awesome. So now I have all kinds of really fun questions about how this works. Uh, mostly for me, I'm like forgetting that we're actually recording this. So um, we've gone over what it is, why you went with short-term rentals. So my question before I get into how you choose markets and all that. So with a regular real estate syndication, typically with multifamily commercial. So I've got some money in a few of those. The exit strategy. I know what the exit strategy is there, uh, and I'll explain it for the listeners. So when you're buying a commercial property, it's valued based on the cap rate, which long story short is the income determines the cap rate and the higher the income, basically the higher the value of the property. So when a big fund comes in and buys a property that needs some work and it's got really low rents, they can fix it up, raise those rents, which raises the cap rate, raises the value of the property. So because in commercial, commercial buildings are appraised based on how much money the property makes. With short-term rentals, until this could change when the lending industry catches up with short-term rentals and starts viewing them as hotels, which they are kind of like mini hotels, right now they are viewed and appraised as residential properties. So a property that makes $100,000 a year is worth the same as a property next door, to in the bank size anyway, that makes $0 a year. That's not even a rental. So how does that work with syndicating single family homes that are appraised based on that? Like, how do you get over that speed bump? It's a great question. And you're like giving up our secret sauce. I'm really happy we're going to talk about this. So <laughs> we buy single family homes based on value, exactly as you've described, because that's how the industry trades them and treats them and how they've traded for really ever since inception. And we turn them into revenue generating businesses and assets with significantly better revenue than they would be as long-term rentals. Essentially what we're doing is we're arbitraging the market and doing a mini development of a business plan into um, short-term rentals. Now, our plan is to aggregate a portfolio of 70, 80, 300 of them and sell them based on revenue, based on cap. Right, that is our exit plan, and our that typically is going to take about a three to five years, which is your typical syndication type length of hold period, anyway. Um, and we've been able to do this eight times in our first fund, where we turned around eight properties, where we bought them based on value and sold them based on revenue, anywhere between a five point four and a six and a half cap. And so, for anyone also listening, 
the lower the cap or the smaller the number, the higher the multiple. So a five cap, for example, you take 100 divided by five, that's a 20x multiple, right? Of what your NOI is, which is your net operating income before your cost of debt. So not only have we actually executed our business plan, we've done it not once, not twice, but eight times. Um, we've also had significant interest from institutions, right? And their main thing is scale. They don't wanna buy one property. They don't want to go out and do what you and I do of turning a single family home into a short term rental. What they do want to do is they want to buy 300 of them collectively that are stabilized with a T36 of historical revenue and everything that's top tier because they're chasing yield and they'll pay $100 million or $250 million for that because it's done for them. They're walking into yield and they're buying the valuation. And most importantly, they're buying the yield. So that's what we're doing is we're creating that sweat equity, right? And going through those motions, creating significant value. And if we're wrong, three, five, six, seven years from now, for whatever reason, um, our worst case is we sell these homes based on value. And we end up generating a higher than average IRR for the industry, while at the same time generating a significantly better cash on cash for passive income and financial freedom and all those types of things that other people invest for. So that's the exit strategy. Um, and lenders are actually becoming a lot more likely to consider them. And most of them will look at them if you have a T12 or a T24. Because at the end of the day, while we are buying real estate, we're operating a business, right? Real estate just happens to be the vehicle of which we generate revenue. But everything here is a business. Every decision we make is a business decision. Um, and that's how these institutions are looking at it. Okay, I think I'm following here. So you are kind of what you're doing is you're bridging the gap of doing the work of basically why there's not more institutional buyers in the short term space already, because they don't want to mess with that whole front end piece, which is a bitch, if we're being honest, to do. Very much so. And a big institutional <laughs> fund does not want to do that. Okay, okay, that makes sense. That uh, I, I did not know that was going to be the answer to the question, but I totally get it now. So that's I think that's really really a smart move. I'm very impressed. Not yeah, I appreciate care. it. No, no, it's a, it's, it's a, I'm impressed with what you've built. Right. But you know, the, the big thing in this space, Avery, I think is you have a lot of people who DIY and I don't think they're maximizing the revenue on their property or maximizing the opportunity. Right. And I think you also have institutions who recognize that, who are saying, this isn't an investable asset class because A, there isn't enough supply to go buy. There isn't enough supply to go aggregate. And for them, they can't spend a half million dollars and go buy a property a hundred million times a year. They need to be able to spend 50 million or a hundred million dollars into a branded portfolio that's going to generate a significant amount of business for them and yield that's worth the effort. Right. Um, and we've had all, all those conversations are continuing and increasing over time. Um, and also you have to have the vertical infrastructure to actually go execute this nationally, right? That's the other challenge. And unless you're, you know, venture backed, you have the technology experience, or you have just a bunch of money and you want to go tackle a big problem, you're usually not going to go solve that. You see a lot of people buying in like one location, right? Where they might own at best 10 or 20 short-term rentals. 
but then you don't get geographical diversification. You don't get seasonality diversification. You and I both know that seasonality is a big thing in short-term rentals. So how do you balance that? And so we're solving all that pain for institutions by doing all this work. In fact, we continue to see institutions not only like request info on the proposals and you know want to get to know our portfolio, they're even asking us, can we build this a portfolio like this for them that maybe fits their specific strategy, right? Um, either way, we're seeing a lot of interest, and I think that's good for the industry. Totally. And I've been waiting for somebody to do this for a while. And you asked me before we started recording, like, why haven't you done this? And I'm like, because I don't want to. <laughs> Too much work. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm glad to have you on and, and hear who's who's finally doing the work to do that. So that's really cool. Hey guys, if you're enjoying the content of our podcast, but you have additional short-term rental questions, we host a weekly live question session that you guys can join for free. It's at 1 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. And if you head over to strquestions.com, you can sign up. So not only am I the host of this show, but I also own and manage my own properties. And I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have about short-term rental investing. So please join us anytime for a free weekly live Q&A on Zoom. Sign up at strquestions.com. All right. So now I have some more questions on the fund itself and like what you're buying and all that. So how are you guys choosing markets? Are there certain types of markets that you're sticking to you guys, Metro or vacation, or how are we doing that? We're fairly well diversified. So I would say about half our portfolio typically is in Metro-ish markets. When I say Metro-ish, I consider like Scottsdale Metro-ish, not like Los Angeles or New York. Um, we do not invest in like major epic city centers because for many reasons, A, they don't pencil and B, Cities typically don't love that right. um, from a regulatory perspective. Um, and the price of real estate just doesn't make sense versus for what you're buying. So, um, and about half our markets are going to be kind of like your destination mountain beachy kind of thing. So that's another advantage of the fund, right? Is that you have this, this diversification of asset costs and um, in diversification within it. How we figure out what to buy and where to buy starts with software, right? So our software every single month underwrites hundreds of thousands of properties a month. Across currently, we're market mapping 257 local markets all across the country. So as soon as a property hits the MLS, we know about it within about 15 seconds. We know about it, we know the data on it, we know if it'll make a decent short-term rental, and 94% of the time, it sucks. It sucks. The data's like, does it, don't, don't buy, <laughs> right? And then the, six, the top 6% kind of make it up to our what we call our news feed, right? Um, I know stealing from Facebook there and our head of acquisitions and our team starts to really go in and understand it. And of course we have people like John who's actively betting markets for us to start market mapping. Like where do we have an interest, right? But also once we've identified data that tells us we should maybe be looking here. Okay, well, what do we buy here, right? Every market is actually investable if you know what to buy and you know how to design it and who your avatar is who's coming to this market and for what that reason is. So what we find, especially from a metrics perspective that makes sense for us, is we are always investing in typically larger homes, four bedrooms and larger. Um, we are typically getting a 20 to 25% price to rent ratio or revenue to purchase price ratio. And even if AirDNA is not saying we can get that, we can get that because we're scraping actual data from these properties showing that it's possible and the level of competition is incredibly low from a design and operator perspective that we know we can beat that and we've historically done that. 
And then our software tells us, okay, let's say you want to invest in Scottsdale. We market map that market. I, actually, let me use Clearwater because we, we Clearwater is a great example, and you're in Destin, so I think this will be a, this will be a good one. So Clearwater, we knew we wanted to enter that market probably for six or seven months, but the data kept telling us that we weren't a hundred percent sure. So we mapped it for six months, understanding the real estate supply, the Airbnb supply, the demand imbalances, everything. And what we learned is that typically four bedrooms and larger with a pool on a certain acreage of a lot tend to do best. So then the second question became, does that real estate supply actually hit the market enough for us to be able to buy enough of that type of property for it to make sense for a scale like us to enter that market? And the answer was yes, right? And that was as prices started to decrease and decompress a little bit. And so we ended up buying 30 properties in Florida last year. Right, um, because the data was like, "Hey, it was finally time to buy." And in markets like Scottsdale, I won't buy anything that's less than a four bedroom. I won't buy anything without a pool. I won't buy anything without a decent sized lot, so I can build and design and monetize those properties the way that they need to to compete in that market. So, in short, everything we do is driven by data, um, and it's confirmed with humans, right? John is fantastic at confirming that data and really understanding what we call our buy box and our golden circles within that. And I know you've had conversations with John uh, on all those types of things as well. Um, and all those types of things really allow us to go outperform the competition because we just look at the market. How is it performing well? How can we make it better? And we go out and you know crush it because it's not rocket science. It just starts with data. I totally agree with that. And it is not rocket science. And a, a lot of people like to make it rocket science and um, it's really not. So you you mentioned Scottsdale, which I have a, a question about. Are you guys investing in Scottsdale or you have some? We are. There? We have Scottsdale is, is a big market for us. Okay. So good, because that's my next question is about that. And if you'd said no, I would have not known where to go next. So um, <laughs> Scottsdale, we have an office in Scottsdale and I really like Scottsdale for a lot of reasons, but it's one of people's favorite markets to say it's saturated. So when a a fund like you guys, which you're typically looking for a higher return than what an average investor is looking for. And if that, if, if you're looking for higher returns than literally, not literally, mostly everyone else, and everyone else is saying this market's totally saturated. I'm not bothering with it. What makes you guys go into a market like that when you're looking, you know, for better returns than most people? It's a great question. So in Scottsdale, it is absolutely a by count of Airbnbs and short-term rentals, it is saturated. And I think this is where the rookie novice type investor will look at that data and be like, it's saturated. The way we look at it is. Okay, well, who is it saturated by? Okay. And it's saturated predominantly by the 90, which is actually similar to nearly every other market. The 90 to 95% of that market is by operators and DIYers who are not designing their properties to par. They are not operating their properties to par on an institutional grade level. Um, they're still taking iPhone 4 photos. They are operating with IKEA furniture. Their hospitality sucks. They're not using dynamic pricing. They're not doing a lot of things that you and I would preach to every single person, which sounds like STR 101. And now Scottsdale in itself is one of those markets where actually the design bar is incredibly high. 
right? Compared to a lot of other markets. In fact, when we first entered markets like Clearwater, we took Scottsdale-level-esque design and aesthetics and brought that to Clearwater where that didn't exist and it just crushed. It just made it amazing, right? Because the design bars in both of them are very different in terms of who's going there and for why, for why they're going there. Uh, the second thing is we identified via data that there's about three to four pockets within Scottsdale that drive the most revenue pro rata based on the type of property you buy and the purchase price. And so we've been able to identify an arbitrage by buying a lower cost home on our basis where we can drive the highest relative revenue. And of course, if you buy, like we're driving revenue in Scottsdale of some of our homes, 225, 250 that we bought for 890 to 1.1. Now that same level of revenue is being driven by other properties in that market that they paid 1.6, 1.9, 2.3. And to them, it may be a great return, but to us, we're able to get a lot more bang for our buck because we've identified the type of real estate to buy. And the second thing is we have the vertical infrastructure, the operational infrastructure to go into Scottsdale, pick up a property that looks like shit, and this lot has nothing on it in the back, and then turn it into at a much cheaper basis, the type of property we want it to be. If you told someone, hey, can you handle a $220,000 renovation project while you're in California, and to do it in Scottsdale, they're going to freak out <laughs> for many reasons, right? We don't freak out because we have those operational advantages on the ground. So all of those competitive advantages one by one allow us to see the market from a completely different lens. Okay. I really like what you said at the beginning of it's not the fact that it's saturated or quote that there's a lot of rentals. It's who's renting them because you're right. A lot of people will look at a market and say, oh, there's a lot of rentals. I'm, I'm not going to invest here. And then they stop. But in reality, a lot like 75% of them might not be either optimizing their property or optimizing their listing. Like great example, we went on a ski vacation in Montana uh, the week before all the spring break started because we didn't want to be around crowds because we live in Florida. And right now it's Atlanta spring break and you cannot get 10 feet around here uh, without it taking 45 minutes. So we purposely went before spring break, rented a beautiful condo, easily a $2 million condo. It's from I, I, not necessarily a mom and pop rental company, but they had like maybe 20 listings only in that town. And they were not using any pricing software. They weren't using, you could tell they weren't using any property management software. They wanted to meet me at the house to give me the key. And I like, I was offended. <laughs> I was like, no, you can't meet me at the house. What do you want to meet me for? You're like, I know how to do this. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but when we got there, like, I mean, this thing was nice. And you would think, you know, if you're just a new investor looking like, man, look at these really nice condos. I can't afford to buy here. I can't afford something that's going to perform the way I want it to because these really nice places exist. But then the people running them, that condo, I looked at the calendar, had no bookings for spring break at all, period, the rest of the yeah. year. It's because it was being mismanaged. And it happens more often than you might think. And you know, you brought up Scottsdale. So what happened in Scottsdale earlier this year? Super Bowl. And we all probably saw the news or oh, yeah. it was a New York Times article, if I remember. And it was like, you know, this professional manager who had, you know, about a hundred Airbnbs or close to that, and they couldn't get them booked more than 50% of them. 
for they couldn't even get them at 500 bucks a night during arguably one of the biggest events in that time for Scottsdale. Now, contrary to that, we actually did an experiment and I'd love to share it with you yes. is we actually, all our properties in Scottsdale at the time were booked for an average of $1,500 a night for, for Super Bowl week. While other people not only couldn't book them, they couldn't book them for 66% less, right? It's because they were well amenitized. People knew what they want. We knew what people wanted and we marketed them proactively and understood what people wanted. And when I say marketed them, I mean, on Airbnb, your ranking, your titles, your amenities, everything along those lines. Um, and we actually did the test. So my team and I, we were, this was in, I think like December, November, we were sitting around at an offsite and we said, let's go to Super Bowl." And the first thing that came up was like, ah, let's stay in one of our properties. And I was like, absolutely not. I'll tell you why, right? We are using dynamic pricing. Let's go find someone who isn't. So we stayed in Scottsdale. We booked a trip to Scottsdale where we easily could have been, I think it was like 340 bucks a night, every night, whether it was Monday or Friday or Saturday during Scottsdale on like this beautiful five bedroom house, that same property, if it was ours, we would have charged anywhere between 1700 and $2,200 a night. Only difference. And we would have paid it if that was that price. Right. And we were going there for Scottsdale for the Super Bowl, but the owner did not understand how to use dynamic pricing and drive up demand. And also how, you know, how long is their booking lead time? Right? When do you change your pricing? All these types of things, all these operational advantages, they're not doing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting and funny that yeah. it's just <laughs> it's just crazy that these. Not, I assume you guys stayed in a nice property too. That it was it was one we would have bought. <laughs> yeah, that these investors will buy these nice properties and then allow them to be mismanaged and not actually generate the income that they should be generating. It's kind of crazy, but I guess that's where you guys come in. It's the arbitrage. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So if um, before I get to the final three questions of the show, uh, if so, let's say I'm an investor and I've, I'm accredited. Do you want to give a quick definition of what that is for our listeners? Yeah. So by definition, you if you're single, you make $200,000 or more per year for the last two years, and you expect to make that this year. Um, if you're married, um, you make $300,000 jointly and for the last two years and expect to make that this year. Uh, you can also qualify to be a net worth, whether you're single or married, via a million dollar net worth outside of your primary residence, um, or you hold specific licenses that would qualify you as accredited, um, as defined by the SEC and other government agencies. So all those things are readily available online. We vet that um, and you will go through a third party verification with us that, you know, assuming you do want to invest. And that does have to come back clean <laughs> as accredited. <laughs> so we do we do vet for those things uh, extensively. Okay, awesome. So I'm an accredited investor, and I've listened to this show, and I'm like, you know what? That sounds pretty cool. I want to throw some money at them. Uh, what's the What's the process for that? Yeah. So if someone wants to get involved, uh, first and foremost, you cannot just invest. We require everyone to speak to someone on our team. Uh, you know, go through the deck. We want to make sure we answer your questions. Um, we are not one of those companies that you can go online and be an online platform, just drop 25, 50 grand into it. The reason is we want to get to know you. We want to help educate you on the risks. We want to help educate you on the model and everything else in between. Um, you know, then we'll send you our data room where you can view that information, digest it, ask any follow-up questions. And if you still want to invest, then you'll go ahead and get that process started. You'll sign what's called a PPM or a private placement memorandum, which will outline the risks and everything else, the details of the investment. 
Um, and then from there, you'll fund, verify your accreditation, you'll get onboarded to your investor portal, you'll sit back and you'll receive quarterly cash flow and distributions. Uh, everything we do is fairly modern and up to date. We don't do a lot of things via snail mail. Um, and those things will kind of go into the experience. And we typically tell you about one of the nice little perks. Um, Airbnbs are fantastic as owners. Uh, you are an owner, so you get to stay in them like one. So all our investors get 10 to 30% off staying at our properties. Um, them, their friends, their family, and it doesn't affect the investment um, simply because we are simply booking direct, right? So that really allows us to drive the same investment value while driving the same uh, or better utility as well. Awesome. So that's like better than a timeshare. <laughs> it is much better than a timeshare because a timeshare doesn't make you money. And we are <laughs> not focused on your, we're not focused on you using it. You know, you can use it if you want. We are focused on driving profitable returns. Um, and I'm sure you and I, I think, have the same mentality on this, right? Invest uh, where it makes sense first um, and then, you know, spend money where you want to go kind of mentality. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, totally on the same page there. All right. So now we're to the last three questions of the show that we ask everyone. I'm really interested to hear yours. Uh, so first piece of advice, what advice would you give 20-year-old Seif? 20-year-old oh, Seif, wow. Um, um, start breaking things even earlier. Like, I think for me, I, I grew up in a very traditional kind of household. You know, my, my parents wanted me to be the, you know, I was first generation, uh, America, American and, you know, go to college, become a doctor, do all those types of things. And at the time I was like playing with computers and taking them apart. Um, and that wasn't a good thing, right? In my family, it was like, why would you do that? And I wish I would have started breaking more things rather than playing it as safe as I did at the beginning. Now, granted, playing it safe helped me understand a lot of like the world of corporate America and Facebook and growing in that kind of space. Um, and I think there's a value in that for sure, but I wish I would have broke more things more often. Really good advice. We haven't had that yet. Yeah. All right. So this one might be a little bit of a gimme. What advice do you have for a new investor who's interested in getting started today? I think genuinely the first question would be ask yourself your why, right? And why do you want to invest actively, passively, this asset class, whatever it might be? Um, just like you, I'm an investor in a lot of real estate. And the only thing I do actively is short-term rentals through TechFester. Everything else, I'm a passive investor, usually in a syndication in multifamily and office, industrial, storage, mobile home parks, all that. I hate all that, but I love the returns. I love the diversified risk. I love the passive income. You never want to operate those types of real estate deals. Um, but I love short-term rentals because it gives me an edge. It gives me an adrenaline and it gives me a purpose because I understand it from a different lens as an advantage that I can provide value to other people. And that's why people invest in this. So when I, if you're going to get started today, ask yourself, should you go be a passive investor? Do you find more fun being active and having a job, right? Um, is it a little bit of both? And really give yourself a why because getting into the space is a lot easier, even though it's hard, than it is getting out, at least profitably, right? So you really ask yourself if it's the right thing you want to do. And I think that's where we fit in for the people who want to be passive and really want to get exposure to the asset class. 
And for people who are looking to be a lot more active in DIY and really own it as a part of their lifestyle and their experience, I think it's a big thing that you guys push and, and, and advocate for. And I think there's a huge place in the world for both of those types of businesses. Awesome. Also really great advice. And last, this one's a little more fun. What's your favorite book that's impacted your mindset? I think it was a more recent book. There's two. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of play my answer on this one. So zero to one by Peter Thiel. Um, I think it's Peter Thiel if I remember. Yeah. Um, is a big one to me because starting a business is really fucking hard <laughs> and we almost died in many ways. You know, when we first started, we thought we would just hire Picasso and Avance Day or Evolve or other companies and not be vertically integrated because why would we do that? There's other companies that do what we need them to do. We had agreements. We signed eight-figure commitments with some of them. We're good. And then they couldn't do what we needed them to do to the level of bar that we needed them to do it. Um, and so building that first vertically integrated infrastructure, we were at a point where we were either had to fail and fail all our investors or get up and build something that we had no idea we needed to build. And that was our own vertically integrated operating company. Um, and that led me to my second book, or the answer for the question, which is a book called Traction. Um, it's a newer book around business and the idea of getting up, doing it, and testing the theory until you get enough traction. Um, and I think that kind of mindset applies to every part of business, applies to every part of life. Um, I'm a new dad, two, two under two, two boys. My uh, my eldest is turning two here in five days. And, you know, it's, I read probably like so many books on parenting and none of that shit matters, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like everything that someone tells me, I'm like, how something should be. I'm like, nope, none of it matters. And when you're in the moment of like, how do you figure it out? And I think that's applicable to both business, to parenting, to friendships, to love, to everything in between. So I think those are, those are lessons I got from both those books is to just go out and build whatever you're building, be passionate about it and figure it out. And you're going to fail a million times more than you think you will. Awesome. Uh, I do love traction. That's a, that's one of my favorite books that when people ask me that I always recommend traction. Yeah. All right. So Steve, thank you so much for coming on. If our listeners want to learn more about you guys, follow you on social media, all that fun stuff. How do they do that? So you can find us at techfester.com, uh, learn a little bit more about our model, request a call from our team. Uh, everything we do is on an invite basis. Um, you can follow us on LinkedIn. We share a bunch of photos and all these beautiful, sexy images of Scottsdale type backyards. If you're looking to get into why we put golf simulators and pickleball courts and all these types of things in our properties. Um, or if you're just curious to learn a little bit more about short-term rentals as a passive strategy, we'd love to chat with you at techfester.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on email. I'm, sure I'm not that hard to find as well. Mm -hmm. So we're here to educate first if anyone has questions and we'd love to, we'd love to chat. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Steve, so much for your time. It's a really, really interesting episode. And I think everyone's going to get a lot of value out of it. So thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Avery.